I'm Noel Holzman, and this is Open Concept from Yahoo Finance. I made this podcast to bring attention to the entrepreneurs and innovators in Canadian business. This week, we're talking about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and blockchain. These are things we now hear about constantly, and I think most of us have an understanding of the terms, even if that understanding is very basic. They all pertain to money, currency, not bills, obviously, and not Canadian dollars, pounds sterling, or euros, but digital cash that is encrypted and then transferred over a network. There are now thousands of cryptocurrencies, though the most famous by far, of course, is Bitcoin. That's largely because it was the first. Bitcoin introduced us to the idea of blockchain, and without drilling in too deep, know that blockchain is the ledger that keeps track of the exchange of funds. Essentially, it's what ensures that the same money isn't spent twice. Okay, so that's the briefest of summaries, and needless to say, it doesn't do the subject justice. But it is a necessary preamble to today's guest. I never thought Bitcoin or any of these other cryptocurrencies were really suitable for buying pizza or coffee. Hi, this is Alan Safahi. I'm CEO and founder of Z Network. What interests me in Alan's work is not so much the introduction of a new cryptocurrency. As said, there's no shortage of those out there. The appealing thing is the fact that Alan is trying to improve the global remittance industry, specifically how much it costs for people to send money back to their home countries. In Canada alone, $23 billion is sent abroad, mostly to the Philippines, China and India. The cost per transaction can range up to 10%. That's an exorbitant rate, especially for those who can least afford it. Alan is seeking to change that and sees his Z tokens as a key to reducing costs and eliminating many of the obstacles that currently make remittances such a vexing process. So it, it's funny story. My dad uh, had an import-export business, and he was importing a lot of um, electronics equipments from the U.S. And he was paying a middleman something like two hundred thousand dollars a year in commissions. You know, back in the seventies. And he said, you know, go to U.S., study something, engineering something, <laughs> and when you graduate, you can have. You know, he gave me the address of the company that he was buying the pumps. You know, this was electronic pumps that he was buying for air conditioning. He says, go to this manufacturer, tell them my name, and they'll give you they'll give you the contract, <laughs> and you can you can keep that two hundred thousand dollars as your t- salary. I said, oh great! So I came to the U.S. with the intention of getting an engineering degree and working for my dad. As I, as it turns out, a couple of years later, the revolution happened, and of course. Uh, you know, he lost a lot of his money and so forth, and I wound up uh, supporting myself. You know, working at uh, Mac- Mexican food and pizza places. <laughs> so it's a little bit different career <laughs> changes. Alan was born and raised in Iran. He moved to California to go to university. A decision that unsurprisingly changed the trajectory of his life. He's only very occasionally been back to Iran, but the experience of having so much of his family so far removed has shaped his outlook, not only on the challenges many immigrants face, but how pervasive those problems can be. He put himself through school and then later, when he could afford it, went back to the University of Southern California to get his master's degree. But it was a special assignment in 1980 that ignited Alan's passion for entrepreneurship. I started as an engineer. I worked for a BASF, a German company, and you know I was the youngest engineer in the in a company. And everybody dumped their blueprints in my office, in my cubicle. So I went to my manager and I said, "Why can't we just get this uh, automated system so, so we don't have to use paper anymore?" And so purely selfish reasons. And he said, "Okay, great idea. Why don't you 
write up a proposal and I did and it got approved. Then they came back to me and said, why don't you just outfit the whole company with PCs? So I worked with the MIS department there at the time and um, you know, outfitted the whole company with PCs, including the engineering department and saved the company about $400,000 by going to IBM Compatibles instead of IBM. And then I thought, oh, there's a business opportunity here. I can do this for other companies. So that's when I left engineering and became an entrepreneur. And I've since had six startups, so... You're still the CEO of ZipZap, right? Yeah, I, and I have people that are running it. I won't okay. be CEO much longer, but um, so when I cre- uh, created ZipZap, the idea was to you know, help with financial inclusion. People that didn't have credit cards that wanted to shop online, you know, as you can imagine, majority of the world doesn't have credit cards. Yeah. In some markets, it's 80% cash base, you know, Latin America, Russia, Brazil, you know, in um, Asia. So um, what I created ZipZap for was to enable people to shop online and pay cash offline. You go online and you buy something at Macy's or Toys R Us or whatever, and then at the checkout, instead of pushing a credit card button, you push cash. And then we would generate a voucher with a barcode that looked a lot like a bill, a utility bill. And then you print that and take it to Walmart or CVS or write it. And the clerks there would treat it just like a bill. They would scan it, take your cash, give you a receipt, and you're done. They don't ask any other questions. So we created this concept, then went after a bunch of retailers and found out that the retailers had three to five year waiting list for any new payment options on the shopping cart. So of course, as a VC funded company, we couldn't wait three to five years. So we were kind of scrambling and then then we hit upon the Bitcoin in a concept. Some of the Bitcoin exchanges um, just starting up in 2012, they came to us and said, hey, can we use you as a payment processor? And I said, well, you know, I know about Bitcoin. I read the white paper. You know, I didn't know that it was actually a reality now. So why not? Um, so I took it to my partners at MoneyGram, and they approved it. And we launched uh, in 2012 with a few exchanges, and it took off. So basically, a lot of people in the early days of Bitcoin, they couldn't buy it with credit cards or you know bank transfers, so they had to pay with cash. And we were one of the only options available for them to do that. So. Right now, if you research it, one out of seven people that bought Bitcoins in the U.S. bought it somehow through ZipZap, <laughs> through our partnership. And then um, the then the Silk Road thing happened and everything kind of came to a halt. Um, yes. So MoneyGram and the retailers for reputation risk understandably you know, backed out. And uh, we had to go and uh, look for other options you know we, we thought about uh, maybe to go into Europe and look at other um, locations but you know I had been talking by this time about the social impact of cryptocurrencies and yeah. they are better used for remittances you know they're better for developing countries than they are for developed countries so what they're really good for is those other markets in developing countries that haven't yet quite caught up you know they could leapfrog credit cards and all these other um, options and just go directly to crypto. I've been talking about this for two years at you know various conferences in Amsterdam, Buenos Aires, you know, New York. But when the whole of, all of these things happened with ZipZap, I decided that I'm going to take up that cause and do it myself. Nobody else was doing it at the time. So so we pivoted you know, ZipZap and make it into a money transfer operator or yeah. MTO. Yeah. And uh, to launch it, we went to Canada, went to Vancouver because yeah. Canada had better regulations for money transfer licenses. For one, you just need one federal license. You don't need provincial or state-by-state license <laughs> as yes. they do in the U.S. So that was the main reason. Uh, plus, you know, 
we love Canada, we love Canadian people, it's English speaking. <laughs> and yeah. Vancouver, because it was the same time zone as we were in San Francisco. It took us a while, but it finally took off, and we understand the, the whole challenge of the MTO business now. So it wasn't so much that you had a an awareness that the remittance process not it wasn't broke, but it is it's not great for the senders or receivers. Well, yeah, you can't be an immigrant and not know that pain point. Okay. <laughs> yes. Everybody he feels that pain point. It's it's broken. You know, let's be honest. If if remittances were um, run something like email, yeah, where you can just click a button, it goes, and you don't have to call somebody and say, "Can I send this to you to your system?" Uh, you know, if it was like that, it, it, we wouldn't be here sitting here talking. Yeah, the, the system is completely broken. It's your money, but they tell you how you can spend it and how much and when and where. And uh, there's all these extra costs, um, ex- especially from south to south remittances. If you're south of the equator and sure. you're, you're sending money, it can go up to 25%. Yes. So right now, the so average... It's not broken for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, even for here, a lot of uh, my Canadian friends, yes. I mean, when they send money overseas, they're paying 7 8%. You know, yeah. The costs are still around 8%. So... I think it should be zero. I, I really honestly think there should be no cost. Yes. And so was the point of departure for you originally thinking, okay, how can I tackle the remittance issue? Or was it that uh, you had an awareness, okay, here's cryptocurrency and here's a here's a way that it can yeah. ad- better address society? It was society. The, the former. Okay. Uh, most entrepreneurs, I, I uh, unfortunately, start with a hammer and they look for a nail. <laughs> In my case, I always, always look for pain point. You know, yeah. I, uh, one of my professors at USC always taught us, you know, whenever you meet somebody, always ask him, what is your pain point? What can I help you? What keeps you up at night? Yes. Because when people tell you that and you come up with a solution for that, then you have friends for life, right? And and in this case, I knew the remittance was a pain point it, for me personally, yeah. um, as an immigrant, but also for all my friends, for all, you know, everybody that was using it. The process is, um, you think about two types of immigrants. You have the expats that are more, you know, high skill, you yeah. know, engineers, doctors, lawyers, and so forth. And then you have the immigrants that are on the bottom of the economic scale, but there's like 90% of them that are maybe working as uh, restaurants or, you know, hospitality industry or, or you know, childcare yeah. or adult care. So those people that are non-skilled or low-skilled, um, they are oftentimes using brick and mortar locations. They go to Western Union, MoneyGram, retail locations. Yeah. So for them to send money, they have to take time off from work you know, because it's usually open only during office hours. So they have to take time off for work, you know, take a bus or you know, take a bike and go for a half an hour, an hour, go waiting line, fill out some forms, pay the cash, pay the fees, and then wait around till they get a confirmation. Then they head back, you know, home to their office. So they lose half a day. And they pay for that privilege of paying seven, eight percent fees, and it's just ridiculous. And um, so I, I think there's a lot easier way. You should be sitting in your you know living room in the middle of the night and click a couple of buttons and send the money. You know why do you have to go through all that hassle? And then on the other side, of course, there's another problem. If you're sending money, for example, to Philippines, the recipients likely will pick up cash because not everybody's banked. Yeah. 80% are cash-based. So they often live, there's 10,000 islands there, so they have to take a couple of boat rides and a bus ride to just to go pick up the cash. They, t- they spend a whole day. Yes. Uh, so what happens is these immigrants, they have high fees that they're paying, but they're sending small amounts. Like every week they're sending their paychecks or they're trying to save up all their money 
and send it once or twice a month so that um, it's not as inconvenient for them as for the recipient as well as because of the cost. Now, if you get rid of all that friction and make it so easy that they can just click a couple of times and send the money, then you'll see that people will send money more often and in smaller chunks where I call it you know, below $100, which I call micro remittances. Yes. And micro remittances, nobody really knows how much volume is there for it. Um, it's estimated it could be as much, if not more than formal remittances that um, you know we, uh, that the World Bank estimates to be 600 billion. Yeah. So we could have another 600 billion or more in informal remittances. Uh, it fascinates me about the entrepreneurial process, and and I I do believe you you either possess that gene or or you don't. It's one thing to diagnose a problem that this does not work for the majority of people, although it, it works for a few companies that that are you know immensely profiting off of it. But that's a totally different challenge than actually endeavoring to address it and having the confidence and the knowledge and the resources to effectively tackle it, particularly when you're dealing with money. I mean, in this is issue, we've got like technology, we've got regulatory compliance issues. How did you sort of map out the solution? Yeah, it's very challenging. Um, so as you can imagine, when you start any kind of business, the odds are against you. Yeah. And you're going to have to just have the res uh, resilience to get up every time you get punched. You know, and, uh, In money transfer, you get punched a lot <laughs> by everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you have not just the existing legacy providers, but partners. I mean, people have seen, and you can't blame them, banks, you know, they're uh, regulated heavily. They have yeah. a lot of compliance costs. So they don't want to deal with all these new startups that, you know, they know they're going to fold in a couple of years. Yeah, you know it's very tough, and uh, the best you can do is um, share a vision. You know, and this is what I do um, when I meet with anybody, uh, whether it's uh, partners or employees or even interns. The first thing I talk to them about is my vision about how we can make this a free remittance solution as easy as sending an email. And once they buy into that vision, then it becomes how do we work together to make it happen, right? The, the only thing I can tell you about any kind of business I've ever started is you look at the pain point, you come up with some ideas, but then you share your vision with others that uh, can benefit from the solution, and then together you can come up with a solution. With Zip Zap, your initial employees were all working on equity, right? right. Is that, <laughs> so, so in addition to everything else, you also had kind of a recruitment and a retainment challenge, right? Oh, yeah. How did you assemble the team to uh, that was going to be able to allocate time to this? And at the same time, you had to figure out how to pay them. Yeah, it's challenging. You have to obviously find people that share the vision and are willing to sacrifice. Yeah in order to make that happen. Um, you know, some people physically can't afford it. They have to have a you know, paycheck, and yeah. others have had some exits or other you know, uh, assets that they're fortunate enough that they can do without getting paid initially. I think that is a really uh, the secret sauce for any startup. If you start a company and you start paying high salaries, you're just buying a lot of employees. You're not getting people really believing your vision and can be there when things get tough. And th things do get tough all the time. <laughs> so, you know, then you'll start losing those people that if you can't afford to pay them, they're going to be gone. So I, um, you know, start out, you know, with, um, hey, you know, equity or in the case of Z with tokens. Okay, and yeah. Because we don't do equity. But they're not coming to Z because of the tokens. They're coming to Z because they want 
to they believe in our solution and they want to see something good that they can feel proud of they can you know leave a legacy behind and yes there will be some upside potential with the z tokens and eventually once we finish up fundraising they can also get paid but um you know so in the order of hierarchy of needs people really need to feel that they're important need to feel that they have contributed something uh, that leaves a legacy behind there's a purpose to their existence and that's what i try to tap into that's how i run my life uh it's not for the money i don't think about oh how much money can i make if i start this company um and i don't think about oh what am i going to be buying what kind of car or house or whatever that's that's farthest from my mind i think about how do i get this solution to people's you know into people's hands immediately and how do i encourage everybody else around me to join me and help me to do that I can see that there's a few different components here. One is that there is a there's a real sort of social justice component of trying to get those that eight percent sort of transaction fee down to either whether it's three percent or, or down to zero. So that's one thing, and I can see why people would be really galvanized by that. I, then the other piece is the cryptocurrency and blockchain as a relatively new area of business and and kind of getting in on the boom. And then there's just the, the opportunity to work with sort of cool, interesting, dynamic people. For you, what is it that you've sort of tapped into most to try to galvanize people to join you in your mission? I think it's the first. You know, people see that, um, the social justice, the social impact. How many jobs can you work in your lifetime that, you know, creates millions of jobs? That yeah. you know, when I used to go around at conferences talking about uh, the social impact of cryptocurrencies. And I was talking about if you reduce this uh, remittance cost by 1%, you create millions of jobs every 1%. And think about the value you add to those countries, to GDPs of those countries. And then I would have all these cool charts that I got from World Health Organization that for every X percentage of increase in GDP, then you have you know, the, all the key indicators go up. For example, you have better healthcare, better water, cleaner water, better... Yeah food um, and education and so forth. So uh, why wouldn't we want that for everybody? Why wouldn't we yeah. want millions, hundreds of millions of people to have better life? And at some point, they can grow into middle class and they can become customers of the West. You know, So you saw that happen in China, in yeah. Japan, in Korea, all of these countries. Um, you know, I think it was something like 800 million people came to middle class in China. So um, it's possible. Uh, we just have to. What we do right now, as a um, developed country, we give foreign aid to this country, some of these countries, and that's the worst thing we can do for them, right? Because we give them forty billion dollars foreign aid, it never trickles down to the average person in the street. It goes to the top of the countries, you know, where yeah. it's spent on military stuff and more jets and more planes and tanks and so forth. I would say, and then at the same time, we are charging sixty billion dollars a year in remittance fees from the bottom of that economy. Yeah. So why not just you know, get rid of both? <laughs> you, yeah. you come ahead with a surplus of money for those countries and create millions of jobs and lead to happier uh, constituents that could potentially become customers of the West in the future. In Canada, I understand the outbound remittances are roughly 23 billion mm -hmm. a year does that include the micro no. remittances okay so it could be it could be much higher yeah there's no record of it because yeah. uh world bank um collects that data from uh, existing players and the only thing we can report is uh you know what 
goes through our platform. Okay, yeah. The Hawala stuff and the, you know the the other stuff that people do, uh, tr- you know, with friends and family and bartering and all that that never gets uh, recorded. But what we know from interviewing with our customers, once you lower the barrier, the friction and the cost they don't have any reason to use alternative channels, which is also good for government because it'll be more regulated. Yeah. You know, once you can track it, then you can regulate it easily. So it's beneficial for everybody to get rid of these fees. So the three biggest markets, or is it China, the Philippines, and India? Is that India, where the- China, and the Philippines, yeah, Okay, in that order. And so right now with that, is, it, is that where you're focused, or is it- Global. Okay, so think about, uh, we have two focuses. You have the sending countries yes. and receiving countries. Yeah. Right? From the sending countries, we're focused on Canada right now, and yeah. then Europe, and then when we get our approval from SEC from US. Those are markets that there's a lot of money being issued, you know, sent. Yeah. But the receiving countries are, you, as you mentioned, India, China, Philippines, uh, Vietnam. Um, if you, And then it depends on corridor. If you're going from US, Mexico is the largest uh, okay. Yeah. Twenty six billion dollars a year. If you're going from UAE, India, and Pakistan and Bangladesh are very large. So you kind of look at uh, ge- geographically, um, you know, where the biggest markets are. But you know, that's just one parameter we, we look at. Uh, you know, we also look at other factors uh, such as partnership, regulations, banking, you know, infrastructure. I'm not just fixated on going after the biggest markets. I really want to see where we can have the pro- biggest impact, you know, provide the most help. So, you know, by the end of this year, we'll have over 40 plus countries for paying out. You know, we're going to continuously add that to be over 150 soon. Uh, but Eventually, we'll have options to send money everywhere. Especially, I'm interested in markets that nobody else is serving. You know, that's tough to get. Venezuela, Cuba, some of the other markets. You know, the, I know uh, legally, of course, we would always try to do it legally. But it's sometimes people just give up because the paperwork is too much, or uh, because the costs are too high, or infrastructure isn't in place. So um, we have put together part of our token economics. Yeah, you know, we're selling 21 billion tokens, but we're also setting aside 21 billion tokens, the same amount, to invest in startups in these growing countries uh, so we can create those infrastructures. So we can invest micro-investments of up to $100,000. And we are looking at partnership deals with other nonprofits that are helping um, you know, entrepreneurs in these uh, you know, developing countries so we can co-invest with them our tokens. So some of this money is going to go into helping create the the infrastructure so that we can do free remittances down the road. Coming up, why Alan, based in the heart of Silicon Valley, came to Canada to launch not one, but two tech companies. Can you walk us through what the process is of creating a currency? Like, you know, because we are, I think a lot of people are still sort of wrapping their head around, you know, yeah. cryptocurrency, how it functions, how it interacts with the yeah. blockchain that it it sits on. Yeah, I, I go to conferences and I speak at the events and people always ask me, you know, you know, what kind of... Um, 
questions do you ask yourself before you start a currency? What what should we focus on? And, yeah. and, and I think what I tell them what to not focus on is um, you know don't create a currency because you want to make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, there's an easier way to do that. To be honest, uh, you saw a badge a group of people that did that the last couple of years, but a lot of them are now having to give it back or or they fail. Majority of them fail because you know you give somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience a ton of money. What are they going to do? Blow it and yes. you know they're not going to deliver anything. So. The, the process that I go through for Z, for example, I look at the pain point and I said, is there a solution that we can do that doesn't involve crypto? What is What other options are there? And well, the ZipZap option was one way and it's very successful, by the way. It's doing well, even though with the cost, with the Bitcoin and all that, it's still successful, but it's a very small drop in the ocean. <laughs> you yes. know, I wanted something that was more meaningful, more impactful. And I looked at... Uh, with ZipZap, for example, it took us a long time to gain the trust of the customers. That customer acquisition was a really important part that you don't think about when you start a technology company. <laughs> you think that you build it, they come. But yeah. it, it was very, very difficult. So it, I have a lot of respect for existing money transfer operators that have relationship with their customers that go back decades. So I thought, why compete with them instead of helping them? If they have this uh, jewel of you know relationship with the customer, but what they lack is technology or maybe cash flow to invest, to expand. Why don't I give up, give them those things and let them keep their customers? So Zed is totally white label. The, the MTOs keep their own customers. So that's uh, the, the thought process for me was, let's look at the solution. What's the best approach? It's not the approach wasn't to compete against MTOs. It was to partner with them. And then once I decided to partner with them, I had to find out what, requirements they had well number one requirement for them and i talked about crypto um before they hang up <laughs> is that yeah is it fully kyc okay because their relationship with their bank and the relationship of mtos with their regulators is on thin ice it's so uh, fragile that if they go and say that we're using bitcoin or cryptocurrency or something like that immediately they could get um in trouble and the kyc is the piece that ensures that I I am who I say I right. am. With. Sorry, it means know your customer. Yes. So it came after the Patriot Act, you know, yeah. after the 9-11. So KYC means uh, it's something I always thought it's, um, it's actually good to know your customer. You want to know your customer. Yeah. Um, you don't want to have anonymous people using your product. You don't get feedback. You have no idea what they're using it for. So from a business standpoint, it's really good to have um, you know, a good system in place to know your customer. And then we also put anti-money laundering. Really put, so I asked uh, the MTOs what's important to them and that KYC, anti-money laundering, uh, re, you know, monitoring and reporting, all that was very important to them. So we beefed up our, our compliance group in order to be able to deliver on all of those products. Um, the other thing important to them was, of course, transparency and cost and, you know, and um, speed of delivery. And so we, you know, with cryptocurrencies, we thought, okay, that we can do that. With blockchain, we can deliver something around the world in a few seconds and we can do it very inexpensively and transparently. Um, and the transactions are immutable. It's there on the blockchain forever. So... So then some of the MTOs that are small, they didn't have any technology. They want, like their people wanted the mobile app, their customers, and they couldn't afford to build the app for them. Yeah. So even some of the tier two ones told me they spent a couple of million bucks building an app that nobody uses. So ours, fortunately, you know, 
in our second iteration, the first one was a failure uh, because we built it in a you know closed door in Silicon Valley. Then we took it out to the market and nobody liked it. So I scratched it and I started again by going to the temples, going to the you know Filipino festivals, Independence Day festivals. I I personally attended dozens of these events and talked to people. I went to community centers and met with um, immigrants and asked them what you know their feedback and. Once we built this, it took us over a year. Once we built the mobile app, um, we got really good response. And so a lot of our competitors actually used to come to me and wanted to license the technology, which is another reason why we decided to do Zed. Because I couldn't just, as ZipZap, couldn't just give them away this uh, platform. Of course not. But no. with Zed, we can. We, we give away the mobile app, the web app, the back office, the whole thing that I call remittance in a box. You know, everything you need to have a remittance company except the customer facing part you have to still go out there and get the customers and maintain them but everything else on the back office we provide for free we you know but the only thing we ask is that you use our tokens to settle with each other and because of the token economics and the value of the tokens you know hopefully going up because of supply and demand then we you know we can recuperate our cost that way when you went to the community centers and the, and the temples and and got an understanding of I guess a, a better understanding to a certain extent of the, of the pain points, but also the processes involved. Did you find that like the Vietnamese community had their MTOs, which was different from the Philippine community, which would be different from the perhaps the Iranian community? Like, Was it sort of geographically, culturally segmented Not that way? Not so much. I think um, there were some cultural differences in terms of um, customer acquisition strategies and so forth, but in terms of the actual need and the desire to support your family, it's universal. But I would think also just in terms of the customer acquisition piece, because these communities, they, they gravitate to different media. The marketing piece must have been fairly challenging unless you were just focused okay we're going to focus on the philippine community to start off with the chinese community you know yeah, what we do um I, I i recommend uh hiring people from that community yes <laughs> to begin with right because um so i have my you know uh managing director is from philippines um my designer is philippine you know, i have indian uh you know people that work for us that are um in developers that are indians that have developers and that are different nationalities. So we um, having people from different nationalities bring that their perspective to you, and they have friends and family they can go to to get you know feedback for you, yeah. and um, you know and they can tell you which uh, media and which uh, events to you know pay attention to. Yeah. So yeah, of course you have to do a little bit of that um, because you're trying to compete against uh, another MTO that's really focused on that market. Um, so the customer acquisition is the toughest part. I tell you, this is a tough that a part that nobody tells you about for remittance business. You think, you know, you build an app, you you, you know, it saves money and people will come, but that's not it. You have to really gain their trust. And so we became part of the community. We went, sponsored a bunch of events and went to those events and people want to see you. Even though they're using an app, they want to know who you are, who's behind the scenes because they're worried about losing their, you know, and their money that's harder than cash. Yeah, I can see, particularly when you're talking about people's money, that they want to have that security. How has the the political climate now in the U.S., in the administration, has that had an impact on on uh, where you're finding talent or where you're choosing to to focus your operations? Well, um, yeah, I I think uh, it's 
it's, things are bad, and uh, but it's not so bad that people are leaving their country to yeah. go look for a job in Canada. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know if that has an impact. Uh, what really has more of an impact with the political environment is the way um, that other your counterparts around the world treat you. Um, that, you know, they're worried about doing business with the U.S. They yeah. used, they used to be worried before. Now they're really scared. <laughs> they don't know what happens. They don't know if regulations are going to change overnight. You know, we, are we going to get out of NATO tomorrow? Yeah. Are we are we going to drop out of the you know World Trade Organization? So any uh, irrational decision that's made by Washington impacts businesses in the U.S., which is one of the reasons I'm really happy I'm doing business in Canada because yeah. I'm somewhat shielded from that. But being a U.S. citizen, of course, you know, I get asked that question all the time and you're spending a lot of you know, time explaining away, uh, you know, but you can't really explain away the, you know, racism and some of the other stuff that it has recently surfaced up. So I, the only thing I say is when people ask me questions about comparing U.S. and other countries, I say, look, look at Canada. They have the best immigration policy. We should be looking at the positive instead of, you know, accentuating the negative. So look at, you know, you, you have a point system. You bring in the best talented people. Once they get here and if they lose their job, you spend resources to retrain them, to put them into new jobs. That's the way it should be done. Um, and this is you know, why I think Canada has a very, you know, bright future in terms of, you know, um, and when you talk to average people in the street, they're really pro-immigrant. It's not yeah. like the government is shoving it down your throat. People actually like the fact that, you know, we have um, a good policy that brings people in this country. So I tend to focus on a positive side of things. And, you know, what happens in the U.S. with the immigration uh, policies that are going on, I think it's going to backfire and, you know, I was at a conference at in Vegas, CES, and I stood up. This is when this whole thing happened. This is January. And I stood up and I said, you know, somebody asked me something similar to that. And I said, look, we had 150 speakers that day, and probably 149 of them were immigrants. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I said, we are creating technology solutions that benefit the world, but we're doing it here. We choose to do it here in the U.S., or in my case, in Canada as opposed to other parts of the world. I can't do it in Iran. I'm, you know, I don't have the same resources. So, um, so I think uh, we should have a policy of welcoming talented immigrants and giving them all the opportunities to succeed because it benefits all of us. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Alan Safahi, founder and CEO of ZipZap and Zed Network. If you like this show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts, or your favorite listening app. Drop us a review or let us know a disruptive Canadian business leader who you'd like to hear from. I'm Noel Holzman. You can reach me at nholzman at oath.com or find me on Twitter at at ngholzman. This show was produced by Stephanie Werner. We'll see you next week.